Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I had the opportunity to speak with Dan Graves from Delphix, and we chatted about applications that fail because they're utilizing old data and how Delphix as an organization can overcome this. Dan spoke in depth about data masking, what it is, and what this could mean to an organization. He discussed the complexities around masking data manually, and how difficult that is to do, and why it should be avoided. If you're keen to learn more about data masking or how Delphix can help you, then please keep on listening. Dan Graves, thank you so much for joining me on our podcast today, and I'm really excited to have this conversation. There's a number of reasons why, and one of the reasons why I think it's really, really important to have this chat with you today is to sort of talk about the nuances, especially on the front around data masking. And I'd really like to dig into those details a little deeper with you. But before we do that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can we, can you talk our listeners a little bit more about where you started to what you're doing now? Sure, sure. So, um, Let's see. So I've been interested in computers and technology since grade school. Uh, I learned how to program on my TI-994A. You've probably never heard of that one, but it's an old silver computer that's a basic one you can buy for a couple hundred bucks and learn on as a kid. Eventually, I got more and more interested. So I got my bachelor's and my master's in computer engineering. And I've been in technology companies ever since. So uh, small and large, I worked at Next for a while. Uh, I've worked at Sun. I've worked at a lot of different software companies. Uh, a lot of them focused on, you know, application development and enterprise software. And then eventually I switched over to Semantic. And Semantic is where I got my first education really about security and privacy and regulatory compliance and all of those themes. And then I've now been at Delphix for six years uh, and it all sort of comes together because we've got technologies that focus on helping companies, you know, build and release applications more quickly and deal with all the data privacy issues that crop up into those application development projects. So when you talk about data privacy issues, now, in my experience, it's sort of always been an afterthought, as everyone in security would know that, especially when it comes to the development side of things. Do you think that's sort of changing face now because people do understand because of uh, government bodies, compliance, all that sort of coming into play? Do you think that's sort of changing people's mindset about how they view privacy nowadays? Uh, Certainly. Certainly. I think it, in many cases, changed it from a nice-to-have to a must-have. I mean, depending on the industry you're in, um, you may be dealing with healthcare regulations that protect patient data, right? You may be dealing with, you know, uh, GDPR uh, or any number of regulations. And it seems like they're coming faster and faster. You know, in the in the COVID era, there's there's a lot of them in governments right now being being pushed through to protect patient information. You think about you know, some of the things where people are talking about, well, how do you do tracking? If I know that, you know, this population or this group of people was exposed to the virus, 
and they're moving around and the telco knows where they are because of where their phone is. Well, how do you protect that information? How do you protect the identity of that person, even though you're trying to monitor and track to keep track of the, you know, the disease and how to how to keep it from spreading as much as possible? And so brand new challenges like that are really forcing people to think about it and how to carefully anonymize the information. No, you're absolutely right. And I think because of these brand new challenges, like we've seen the pandemic and now that sort of forced companies to work from home and probably for the foreseeable now, there's a lot of talk around companies, especially at the largest size, are not really looking for everyone to come back into the office and have it the way we used to work. So can you talk to me a little bit more about what's happening in the market at the moment? Because as we mentioned before, a lot of people are working from home and their normal operations have kind of changed. Do you believe this has caused development to slow down only because companies have had to adapt to a new way of working and that's probably been their priority? It's a great question. So uh, a couple of pieces there that you mentioned, I think are really interesting. So first is, I think companies' abilities to work from home, you know, as of March, vary dramatically. Some companies already had, you know, laptops provisioned to all their employees and VPNs and hard disk encryption and, you know, all these technologies sort of ready to go. And companies, in those cases, employees could go home and start doing working on their project on a Monday and they were in their office on a Friday. But we've seen lots of companies where that's not nearly the case. People were on old desktop computers. They didn't have adequate security software on these devices because they were always, you know, behind firewalls and in locked rooms and other kinds of security controls. And so, you know, I would say, again, depending on the country you're in and the industry, it's taken companies, you know, quite a bit of time to sort of enable their remote workforce in some cases. Second factor is what you talked about with project slowdown. Um, and I think it's been a mixed bag. So what, what I've noticed is that in some cases, certain kinds of projects just got the brakes put on them completely deprioritized, not urgent, not mission critical. And so those projects stopped. Um, but others accelerated. And one interesting thing that we've seen accelerating has to do with operating at distance, you know, digital projects. How do you interact with your suppliers? How do you interact with your distributors? How do you interact with your customers? And so I've seen loads and loads of companies where they've put, you know, a lot more energy and a lot more focus into these particular kinds of online interacting experiences, right? You know, maybe it's a mobile app, maybe it's, uh, you know, a website, maybe they call it, you know, their customer platform, digital experience, whatever. There's lots of fancy names for it. But the bottom line is we've seen increased investments in all of those things that are required to effectively do business when people aren't seeing each other face to face. Do you think that's sort of going to increase anyway? I do. I do, to be honest with you. I think that I don't think businesses are thinking of, you know, COVID-19 as a three to six month phase and it's all going to go back to the way it was before. I've talked to very few CIOs who think about that way. They think of it as a, a wake up call or an opportunity in terms of how to do things differently going forward. I mean, a lot of companies are thinking and having conversations about working from home 
for the foreseeable future, not stopping when they're allowed to go back to the office. You know, I'm, I'm here in the States uh, and most of the large tech companies that I talk to, friends at Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, none of them are going back to work this year and maybe not ever. Uh, so I think the whole notion that you need to be able to be effective in doing all the things that you do for your job, whatever kind of role you have from anywhere is going to increase investments of things like, you know, work remote forever. I think it's not going to go back to everyone's face to face. Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, I've seen a lot of companies making conscious choices to be able to do, you know, more remote. One example is cloud. If you think about companies who have a lot of on-prem physical infrastructure and the cloud, uh, they're experiencing firsthand that it's a lot easier to go into your Amazon console and uh, reconfigure a network. Uh, whereas to do it with your on-prem data center, that might require somebody going in and, you know, moving cables and, and you know, replacing hard drives and all the kinds of physical things they have to do. So we've also seen, you know, an uptick in cloud interest for the same drivers. So when you said earlier, a wake up call, what do you mean when you say this? Was it sort of that people are like, well, now I kind of have to move and I've got no choice. Is that sort of the reasoning behind when you say that? When I said wake up call, what I really was getting after was people are experiencing ways to effectively work Mm -hmm. that they were kind of forced into because of the virus. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we're doing 100% of our meetings, for example, with customers over Zoom. And before we would have been flying around to do a lot of those meetings. And one of the things we noticed as, you know, a small software company, we could do three or four times more customer meetings per week because we weren't wasting time in flights and taxis and airports. And so I think just as Delphix is one little data point in the world, we've been having a lot more productivity from all of our workers because we're more efficient, we're more effective. And also our customers are learning that interacting with us in these online ways saves them time too. And so I guess what I mean is, until forced to work from home in these remote things, a lot of companies weren't doing a ton of experimenting with it. Some were, some weren't. Uh, but in all cases, people are finding ways to get through it. Let me give you another example. So we're working with a customer in the Italian government right now. And um, in their case, they had a whole bunch of processes and things they had to work on where they had laws in place that required face-to-face committee meetings and certain voting procedures and things, you know, and you had to be in the room together to do that. And so they were completely stopped when COVID came because everyone was in their home and they just, the regulations required that they couldn't move forward on certain decisions and things until they got back in a room together. And so now they've put pushing to change those laws so that if they're ever in a, a, a work from home situation in the future, that can do it. So I guess it meant it's a more of a, it's been an interesting learning. Companies have learned how these new ways of working can be even more effective than the old ones. And so in that, in some cases is, you know, increasing the desire to, to work on them. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And speaking of being sort of forced into the situation, I agree with a lot of your thoughts around because people are in this situation, they've had to, 
think differently and, and they're forced into it. And that's been a requirement for people to sort of push towards cloud adoption and more people heavily considering this because, like you said, they are forced in these situations. Do you believe that this is propelling organizations with the intent of releasing more applications because of the situation? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, we think that, you know, from talking to the customers that I've talked to, they want to accelerate the speed of releasing applications uh, because they want to transform them and make them easier to work with. So there's a, a lot of projects in all of the enterprises I talk to focused on customer experience, customer experience transformation, and, um, you know, really making it easier and simpler for whoever that end user is to to do it. And so those are iterative projects, right? Changing things quickly, getting feedback, changing them quickly, getting more feedback, you know, sometimes running multiple UIs at the same time out to different parts of the customer base and seeing which ones get traction and which ones don't. So these are, these are really interesting projects that are, you know, important because they help drive customer adoption and they help you know, promote customer attention. And so there's, it's a big business and, you know, whether it's a mobile app or, or any other kind of online experience, we've seen that companies are pushing to do it faster and faster and faster cycle time in order to innovate and be more effective and compete. Would you say, because people are now pushing things to be faster and faster, which I totally understand that security is kind of on the bit of the back burner then, because it's like, well, we want to get these things out to market. And as you know, in a traditional development world, it's all about functionality and less so about security. Obviously, that's changing now because of uh, secure by design and, and how security does need to integrate into a, a CI or CD uh, pipeline. But do you think that's still sort of the mindset at the moment? Let's see. That's an interesting question. From my research with customers, I would say that they're trying to solve for both simultaneously. They're trying to both go faster in their projects so they can get more more releases per year. And they're trying to you know, manage the risk around those projects, especially in regulated industries. If you're, you know, banks, hospitals, um, you know, companies dealing with credit card numbers and customer information, they're definitely trying to do both. And sometimes, as you pointed out earlier, it's because they have to. There's a really big penalty or fine coming if they have a bunch of actual customer data in all of these QA environments and they get caught with without having protected it properly. You know, right now in the middle of the stress or that COVID-19 is providing to these industries, I'd imagine there's some cutting of corners to do, you know, work from home without perfectly secure environments and so on. But when we talk to companies, I think we're trying to catch up. There's definitely an increased demand that we're seeing to try to be able to, you know, effectively anonymize data and other kinds of security controls in these dev test worlds. And do you think because certain industries are regulated, like the finance industry, the health industry, this to some degree is slowing them down because in a perfect world, of course, everyone wants to deploy applications faster because of customer experience, more customers, more revenue. We understand that. But because certain industries are regulated and they can't be dropping the ball when it comes to security, would you say that they're sort of not handicapped, but they can't release things as fast as to perhaps another industry that's not heavily regulated. 
I think traditionally that's been the case, but that's, you know, one of the reasons that Delphix invests in what we do is to try to try to solve that problem. Um, because companies like in financial industries, you know, they've got competition coming from all different directions, right? They've got, mm-hmm. you know, a little fintechs or they've got Apple or other, you know, companies like that with, with Apple pay coming from, you know, the, the tech side, if you're a bank, you're facing competition on all sides. You have to solve for both managing in the regulatory constraints that you're working with, as well as increasing your speed so you can get innovation out there, easy ways to, you know, share funds with a friend uh, or whatever. In Australia, as as you probably know, there's this open banking thing. And so, you know, it's the reg that requires banks to be able to kind of think of it as portability across cell phone operators, right? If you want to move your accounts from Bendigo to Commonwealth, then they have to be able to support that movement. And so we've seen them trying to figure out how am I going to do that? How am I going to you know, build and test all of those capabilities to be able to share information with the other bank when a customer wants to switch, but how to drive anonymized data into that whole process. Can you talk to me about Delphic's approach and how they overcome this problem? Sure. Let me do it in a before and after way. So in the before case, most customers are physically managing copies of data. They've got teams of DBAs who are doing backups. They're moving them across the network. They're restoring them and getting loaded up, usually responding to a ticket from some development team. They're working on a new application. They file a ticket, you know, and a few days or a few weeks later, all of the work is done and this environment's ready to be handed to, you know, the QA person so they can do their testing. That's one of the challenges, right? Just the physical step-by-step movement of data across these disks and across these networks just takes time. It takes a lot of space uh, and it takes labor. And then there are security challenges as well. You know, before the data can be moved, sometimes it has to go through some kind of set of scripts to get scrubbed, cleansed or or whatever uh, to get around those issues sometimes without something like masking. People will use synthetic data to make, you know, there's no actual information in there, but that data doesn't push all the cases like real data does. It's not high fidelity data. It's, you know, usually simpler. Again, to get around the physical challenges, sometimes companies will use subsets, right? Tiny, tiny slices of the data and the same issues show up without using full fidelity and full size data. Um, a lot of issues don't show up in the testing process until they go live. So these are the challenges companies face. Uh, and what Delphix does is basically deliver a platform that pulls in the data from all of those source applications, the production applications. We collect it once and then we continue to collect. So the first thing we do is, you know, load data, a continuous time series of the data onto the Delphix platform. Second thing that we can do, as we've been talking about, is anonymize that data, and we can get more into that later. But now we have kind of a master copy, if you will, a golden master copy that is been de-identified, so there's no more you know sensitive data in it. Once we've done that, we can deliver you know dozens or hundreds of copies of that 
in minutes out to all of these end users. So I'll give you a customer example, Delta Dental Insurance Company, dental insurance, obviously. And so they have set it up so that they have their production applications on premise in their building, all their different insurance applications for claims and so on. They use Delphix to load that data. We then run a second Delphix up in AWS and we replicate the sanitized data across up into Amazon. And then we provision all these copies. And so all of these, you know, they have 200 plus dev and test users who each have their own self-service copy. They can branch, they can go to any point in time, they can rewind and they can do that all with just simple clicks on a self-service interface. They don't have to call DBAs. They don't have to file tickets with IT infrastructure. So they're able to really quickly and easily use those self-service data environments to get their job done. So that's where the speed boost comes. All these people, the developers and the testers, typically have a lot of things they're trying to do where they're waiting. They're waiting for the IT ops teams to get them the right set of data in the right environment so they can do their work. And when those waits go from you know two days to two minutes, everything changes. And the power of having that access you know, really allows them to get a lot more dev cycles per week, a lot more tests per week. All of that stuff speeds up to give both faster and higher quality applications. So when you talk about synthetic data and doesn't have the high fidelity, what are some of the problems that can come with utilizing that type of data when they're trying to create applications or even when they're testing? Usually what happens is that when they go through their sprints and they may have a, some kind of a CICD pipeline and if they're testing with synthetic data, they're missing finding bugs that would show up if they were using full production data sets. They're just not finding issues because the data is not varied enough uh, and detailed enough. And it doesn't have all the weird little corner cases that show up in real data that don't show up in synthetic data. And so you go through these sprints, you go through these spins, and eventually maybe there's a beta stage where you're finally testing with full-size data and you catch a bunch of issues there. Or maybe you don't do it till you are actually pushed into production. And that's the first time you're seeing the full real data. And so finding bugs only once you go live uh, is way more expensive. Finding bugs even in the final testing phases is way more expensive. You want to, I mean, there's the catchphrase shift left. It's measurably lower cost and more effective the earlier you find the issue in your testing as possible. You want to find it within hours of that code getting checked in. And the only way you can have that speed, think about, you know, a typical CI CD pipeline. You have something like Jenkins operating. You are, you know, spinning up some test servers. You're spinning up some empty databases. You're spinning up a new version of the build that you got out of the build system. And then you want to start a test right then. And so, with Delphix, you can, right? We can flush data into that environment in a couple of minutes and you run your two hours of tests. You load a different set, you run a different set of tests. So you can have that actual continuous testing running. But imagine everything else takes 10 minutes. I can get a new server. I can get an empty database. I can get my test code ready. And I have to wait for a few days for my DBA to you know, load the data in there. 
you just lost all of the continuous of continuous testing when you have these multi-day pauses in the middle of it. So when you spoke before about people utilizing synthetic data and then they're not picking up on the bugs, how common would you say that is? I mean, I think most customers have a collection of test data workarounds. So typically they have some full production copies, but they are weeks or months or quarters out of date. We see that very commonly, you know, especially in really large applications like SAP. A lot of times you'll talk to companies and they'll say they refresh the SAP data set for their QA environments twice a year. So that's a super common workaround to get around how hard it is to move around the data and get it ready. Another one is subsetted data, like I mentioned. Uh, another is synthetic. So most customers that we talk to, they have an interesting mix of all of these. They have, you know, some is out of date, some is subsetted, and it's a mix. And so different kinds of symptoms occur in their dev cycle from all of those data workarounds. Why do you think people are, are sort of doing that first and foremost? And my second question would be, is it because they aren't aware that companies like Delphix exist that can give them the speed, they can master data, they can give it accurate data, but is it because there's a lack of awareness or that there are solutions out there? In many cases, that is why. And so, you know, hopefully a few more people will learn about it from the conversation we're having today. But the other reason that we've heard from a lot of CIOs is they've been doing it for a long time. And the way they've been managing data hasn't really changed in 10 or 15 years. They're using a lot of old systems or processes and it's just kind of the status quo. It's the way they were doing things. But but there's another part of that, Carissa, that I think is interesting. And I think of it kind of like a three-legged stool. You know, let's say that you have an application development team who has been working on projects, doing it in an older way. And so Usually what they found is the first thing companies would automate would be their infrastructure. Let's say they used to not be virtualized, right? And they have to go and rack and stack physical servers. And it takes three months to get that done. You have to sometimes order one and get them ready to go. And so just, you know, getting a net new test environment started with ordering a server. And that took three months. Uh, mm. And then eventually they started using VMware and a bunch of automation and they got it down to, you know, a day or two. And maybe eventually they got onto some modern virtualized or Kubernetes or whatever, or they got into Amazon and they got to the point where they could get servers spun up and spun down and configured properly in 10 to 15 minutes. Right. So that's, Nice and quick. So then you go to the second part of the stack. So I can get an empty server in 10 minutes. Now I need to have automation around the rest of my app dev project. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, chef and puppet to do configuration management. We're talking about things like Jenkins or Travis to do automation of the, you know, the integration and delivery of these different environments to run a set of tests. Um, and so that speeds up from a bunch of people doing manual work. And I can now not just spin up an empty server, but configure it properly. I can start all the right code. I can grab my build out of GitHub. I can do all of this stuff um, really, really quickly, 10 or 15 minutes. And then I go to get my data and I realize that that one is still a few weeks of labor. 
it now sticks out like, you know, the third leg of the stool is the whole reason this thing can't go quickly. But it wasn't obvious when everything else was months. So if it took you four months to, you know, get server infrastructure ready and it took you a few weeks to go get all the things configured and loaded and ready, the data taking a couple of weeks wasn't that big of a deal. It didn't really stick out as a as a giant pain point. But once you get the first two automated, then it does. Uh, and so that's what we're seeing now. A lot of companies are getting to really good maturity on their automation of their infrastructure and their automation of their dev test lifecycle. And so now more than ever, it's obvious that the data is sort of the, if you will, the last mile to get everything to to go quickly together. So when you say, uh, I hear that a lot, like it's the way we've always done it, and I guess that concerns a lot of people in technology. But, I mean, if I put myself in a customer's point of view, and yes, it's the way we've always done it, but if there was another way that's faster, everything you've just described, wouldn't people naturally just adopt to that? Are they still apprehensive about doing it the new way? And if they are, why do you think they do that? That's a good question. We rarely find people that are apprehensive to do it at a company level. When you are a, you know, an IT executive, it's pretty easy to <laughs> see how this can help your company, you know, achieve better application outcomes, faster application projects, more innovation, et cetera. That's a pretty easy conversation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, further down in the organization, we'll find pockets of resistance just because, you know, they may be worried that, um, their jobs are changing or their skill sets are going to need to be refreshed. And so there can be just some more human level of, you know, change resistance, but we don't tend to find people, you know, resistant of the, the concepts. They usually get excited. And to your point earlier, it's because they didn't really understand or know that it existed it tends to be the, the thing that has slowed adoption. So one of the things I'm curious when you say that, and I agree with you, of course, when you start getting feathered down the chain, people start getting worried. Are they going to lose their jobs? Are they going to have to upskill? How how do you or your team sort of manage those conversations at that level in terms of like, here, we're not here to take your job away, but we're here to sort of augment your current capability and actually make you look even better because you're deploying these things faster? Yeah, it's a great question. And so if we are talking to one of these workers who would actually be hands-on with Delphix uh, and using it on a day-to-day basis in order to anonymize data with masking or, you know, deliver virtualized copies out to the data end users much more quickly, that conversation is typically about how can we help them help their company get to better outcomes more quickly, as well as just take away a lot of busy work? I mean, there is a lot of kind of not very interesting manual labor involved in the copying of data. We talked about it earlier, mm-hmm. you know, doing a backup, doing a restore, mm-hmm. just loading it into a target database and getting it up and running. And, you know, that's not the interesting thing that. DPAs do, right? It's much more interesting to be helping design the schema for the next version of the application or optimizing performance in in a given application and improving it, putting together. So they can do a lot more 
interesting work and valuable work if we take away some of the day-to-day drudgery tasks and we do right we we automate a whole a whole set of not very interesting work that those workers have to do and once we show them what we can automate they can then see how they can spend a lot more of their time on the interesting parts and the more valuable parts of their job mm-hmm. now i think that's a really great way of looking at it as well So, Dan, what I'd like to talk to you about next is data masking. And for those who are not too familiar with what that means, can you sort of describe? Sure. Let's think of a, let me just use an example of of a customer. I'll go back to Delta Dental and, and use them as an example. And so in their systems, they have actual insurance claims, right? And in those insurance claims, they have names of people, they have addresses, they have social security numbers, there's credit card information. So there's all this data, which, you know, depending on the regulation, uh, healthcare regulation in this case um, is, is protected. And so the company has a goal of not using that original information in downstream systems. Could be an analytic system, could be a QA system. They need to find a way to create usable data for those downstream systems that has no more sensitive data in it. And so you can think about a few ways that that might happen. One is just deleting it all, right? I'm going to just not, I'm going to have blanks in in the place where there was a credit card number. Well, that breaks the application typically, or you could replace a, you know, a patient code with a, a random number uh, and and depending on that might be fine. And so basically what you have to do in, in anonymizing the data is create realistic looking, you know, but fake data. And so a name has to become a real name and an address has to become an address and a credit card number has to become a fake, but a credit card number that still passes a loan check. And you may want to preserve the issuing bank IDs. And so I'll take the example even further. So in Delta Dental, they also want to do analytics with this downstream data. And so imagine that I I have a postal code, you know, a five-digit postal code in our case, and I replace that. Let's say I'm, I'm in California, so ours start with nines, nine, four, one, two, three. Uh, if I replace that postal code with one, two, three, four, five, I've just moved that person from California to the East Coast. Or if I replace, you know, January 1st, 1970 for their birth date with February 2nd, 2010, I've just moved somebody from the 40 something age bracket to the 10 something age bracket. And so when I'm trying to use that data for analytics or application development, it's broken. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when, when we mask data, we have a very carefully constructed set of algorithms that preserve what you need to preserve in the data, such as regionality of a postal code, but still have it be fake. So there's no risk the data gets stolen or if, you know, someone comes in and does a a regulatory compliance uh, check. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm curious about, if you've got 50,000, 100,000, a million or million plus people, in terms of trying to do that manually, the masking, 
one, do people do that manually? And number two, how difficult would that be then for a company to, to try to do that? Because what you've just explained, and that's why I wanted to go into the intricacies of that to explain that it's not just we're putting random things in these fields, like it actually is constructed in a way of ensuring it doesn't break downstream processes. You know, our experience is that it's quite hard to do manually and do it well. Uh, it's hard to create really sophisticated scripts on your own and do it well. And the reason we can tell that is when we typically go into an enterprise and they haven't found some kind of enterprise masking solution, we'll ask a question. What percent of the sensitive data that you have in your test environments has been masked? And the answer is always less than 10%. Right. So they've picked some battles. They've said, we're going to do it for this application because it's worth the time. And we're going to do it for this set of tables because it's worth the time. But we know there's still a bunch of sensitive data in these other tables. And we know these other applications, we're going to try to get to it next year, but we haven't done it. If you think of an enterprise that has hundreds of applications, they may have thousands or tens of thousands of databases. And it's very common that a small fraction of it has been anonymized successfully. So when you're saying that uh, you would traditionally go into companies and they'd say, oh, this is worth their time, this is not worth our time, how are they as the customer defining what's worth it versus what's not worth it? Usually it's risk. There's a chief information security officer. There may be a risk management officer. They look at you know, there's a legal team in many cases, and they have prioritized the criticality of the application, the criticality of the data within the application, and allocated resources accordingly. Those factors change when you're in a different industry. Those factors change when you're in a different country in terms of, you know, what's safe and not safe to do and, and so on. And so it's usually just sort of a a risk-based assessment of the data and the data location and the data sort of privacy levels. And they drive some actions through IT to go and take care of the riskiest areas or the areas where they feel like there's the highest risk of, of having a fine or some compliance violation, or they feel like they have the highest risk of having some breach. And so it's not that different than any kind of standard security privacy assessment. Mm -hmm. They look across the matrix of factors and pick their battles. Would you say it's a fair assumption that companies are utilizing sensitive information for their testing, but they're not masking it? Oh, sure. It happens constantly. It definitely happens. And one of the reasons that that risk is higher in some cases than, than people think is when systems are in their production network zone, there's a lot of controls in place. Those production servers may be in special locked rooms. They may have heavier duty firewall rules in place. They may have intrusion detection and intrusion prevention and a whole host of other security layered on top to prevent people from getting into that production system and dealing data. However, if you think about a QA system, it could be a laptop that goes home and is on a, a Wi-Fi network over the weekend. And so a lot fewer controls are in place on these downstream environments. And so it's actually one of the reasons that, you know, a lot of the data breaches actually go after the sensitive data 
from these non-production systems versus the production systems because it's easier to get to. So if people sort of are aware that if something were to go wrong, for example, you used before about the laptop going home, do you believe that this thinking or thought pattern is not sort of engendered into people in terms of how they're going about their testing, so to speak, or building their applications because they think, well, I've got all these other things in place. It's likely to not happen. Is that sort of a common theme that you're seeing? I would say that in this work from home era that we started talking about at the beginning, companies are becoming much more aware of the idea of sensitive data being on a device that's not in the four walls of our business and what do we need to do to still manage the level of privacy and security. One of the changes in thinking that COVID-19 has created in IT organizations is that these laptops need to go home and they need to implement a, a good set of controls to make it so they can still do that and do it safely. And so we're seeing an uptick and probably so are all of the, you know, VPN companies and all different kinds of technologies that allow you to have, you know, a safe remote environment. I think it was probably having less frequently a lot of Q organizations previously probably couldn't take their laptops home and they needed to keep them on the corporate network and get access to the corporate data systems, which were in a special set of servers. So as things are sort of forcibly loosened up because of work from home, I think it's exposing companies to some areas of, you know, increased risk that they need to address. And so just lastly, to finish up on What do you sort of think in terms of the long game of because now people are forced to think differently and they've got laptops, which means that they could open up a wider attack surface. What are your sort of thoughts on how this perhaps might evolve or change the game down the line? Well, I think it's kind of a trend around that's been happening for a few years, which is you have to think about security and privacy in a location independent way started with a lot of the cloud adoption you know you no longer have your application and your corporate data in your own building Uh, it's up in one cloud or many clouds or dozens of clouds you've got company information inside of amazon and microsoft and google and you have applications like SaaS, what's in salesforce and what's in workday and then for your employees the same thing They're on devices, they're on laptops, they're in their home, they're traveling. And so I think that this has been happening for a while and this is just increasing the notion that when you think about security and privacy, it has to be kind of horizontal across any device, any location, any data center. Uh, the, The controls and practices you have to put in place have to work across that. And I think that's why we've been seeing a lot of interest in some of the things that Delvix can do because we can work on any kind of database. We can work on any kind of data source. We can run in any cloud. And so, you know, when you look at modern enterprise solutions, they have to be multi-cloud. They have to be, again, across all these different data types and and so on to work in a multi-generational way. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I really, really enjoyed the chat, Dan. I think I really liked how you went into specifics around the constructed algorithms. I think that was very, very valuable for people to understand what that means. If people are looking to reach out to you because they have a question that I didn't ask you today, how can they go about doing that? Uh, it's easy to find me on LinkedIn. Daniel Graves, employee of Delphix, and you can find me there uh, and we can start a conversation about this. Well, I really appreciate it again, Dan, and I'm sure our listeners got a lot of insight and value out of this chat as well. Thanks again. Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much for the time today. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.